Psalm 26. Psalm 26 is where we will begin reading. I'm leading a Bible study through the Psalms. We're just working our way through those and having a great time just slowing down and digging into these different Psalms. So we're glad that you are here uh, tonight. Hey, just by way of uh, announcement, you should have gotten an email on this, and uh, hopefully you saw that if you didn't, just to kind of reiterate it. Um, This Sunday, we are celebrating um, several staff members' anniversaries. Uh, We're celebrating uh, Patty, our preschool director, uh, her five-year anniversary. We're celebrating Kevin, our children's pastor, his five-year anniversary. Uh, and we are celebrating Frank's, um, our associate pastor, his 10-year anniversary. He's been here 10 years. And uh, as, a, as, a, as a way just to show our appreciation to Frank, we're going to take up, we've been taking up a love offering for him. Money's already started coming in. Uh, we'll present that to he and Jerry Ann uh, just to celebrate 10 years. 10's a big, big milestone, so we want to celebrate that. So in the services on Sunday, we will, we will recognize all three staff members. We'll have a reception right after the 11 o'clock service, right over there in room 100. Every, everything happens in room 100. Have you noticed that? Uh, everything, as a matter of fact, I, that's, where, that's, uh, that's where I sleep at night. Everything happens, everything happens in room 100. Um, but uh, we'll have a reception for, um, for all three staff members. We'll have some food there for you to eat and so you can hang around a little bit and not have to rush off to lunch. And uh, just some time to hang out and let these folks know that we appreciate them because we really, really do. And we'll present uh, Frank and Jerry in with, with a love offering check. So again, money's already been coming in. Thank you for those that have been giving. If you want to give, just make sure that as you give, it's designated to Frank Peavy love offering, and we will get it to him. Uh, and I know you're generous folks, and, and he will feel loved and appreciated. So 10 years uh, here, that, that, that's pretty awesome. So grateful for all of our staff and uh, grateful to highlight these milestones uh, in their time uh, here. So that's the, the one announcement I have for you. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the 26th Psalm. Father, we love you, and we praise you, and we thank you, Lord, for this time to be able to gather, to step away from the busyness of life, to focus, Lord, solely and exclusively upon you. You are the reason that we're here. Lord, you are the center of attention, and we desire for you to speak for your servants are listening. And so, Lord, by your word, apply to our life, by your spirit, would you just move in a mighty way. God, use your word to mold us and make us into who you want us to be. Lord, may we be transformed tonight by the renewing of our minds. And Lord, would you use this time just to give us a deeper hunger for your word, that we would, Lord, appreciate your word more and desire to be in your word more. And Lord, would you use this night to glorify your great name. We're so grateful, Lord, for who you are and for how you've worked in our lives. I just pray, Lord, that you would get great glory tonight from this time. And we will thank you and praise you, Lord, um, for that grace. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, we're in Psalm 26. Psalm 26, and before we get into the specifics on this psalm, I wanted to remind you of the summary of the psalms, uh, sort of a one-sentence statement that reminds us what the major theme of the psalms are. Now, uh, as you may or may not know, the psalms are a collection of, of poems uh, that were written to be sung. They were written to be uh, accompanied by music, many of them, and to be used in corporate gatherings for worship. Uh, but here's the major theme of the Psalms. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. If you read through the Psalms, you see all sorts of emotions. About any emotion you can name is found somewhere in the Psalms. And we see psalmists dealing with different circumstances, different situations, different feelings, and yet they maintain a deep, abiding confidence in God. If they're on the mountaintop, they are praising God and hanging on to Him. If they're in the valley, they're praising God and hanging, clinging to Him. And so it's so important that we understand that God is worthy of our worship. God is worthy of our trust no matter what's going on in our lives. Amen? 
And the Psalms are great reminders of, of this reality. And so tonight we're in Psalm 26. And Psalm 26 is about firm footing for life. Firm footing for life. Uh, the way our concrete is poured in our uh, garage, if it gets a little bit of moisture on it, I don't know if your garage is like this. It gets really, really slick. And if you are in a hurry and you hit that, that concrete and it's wet, you are, you're, you're going to go down. You're, you're going to slip and slide at least a little bit. And I've, I've slid all across that, um, that, that uh, carport, that garage. And so uh, it's easy to lose your footing in, a, in the right kind of circumstance. And this psalm is about maintaining your footing, having firm footing with anything that comes in this life. And so I've titled it, Firm Footing for Life. Don't you want to have firm footing for life? Look what it says in Psalm 26, verse 1. It's the Psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my... Hey, look at your neighbor real quick and say, Should I be sitting by you? Just kidding. Just kidding. Don't say that. Don't do that. All right. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord." Now, I believe the major theme of this psalm is firm footing or how to have firm footing. And I get that from the first and last verse of the psalm. Look what it says there in verse 1. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I've walked in my integrity and I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. That phrase, without wavering, is literally in the original language, uh, without slipping. Uh, I shall not slip. I will trust the Lord and not fall down. I will not slip down. And then look what it says, the last verse of Psalm 26, verse 12. My foot stands on level ground. I have firm footing. I'm not slipping and sliding with every uh, wind and wave of life. I am standing firm. I'm standing on level ground. So this psalm is about firm footing, and it's so easy in life to lose your footing. Maybe you, you uh, start doing some things you ought not to do or thinking in ways you ought not to think or get around the wrong people or life happens and circumstances change and before you know it, you have slipped and fallen emotionally and spiritually and you are reeling because of what life has thrown your direction. How do you have firm footing for your life? Well, I've given you here three necessities, three necessities for a stable life. Three necessities for a stable life. You want to live life with firm footing. You need these three things in your life. Number one, you need to place your life in God's hands. That's so important, isn't it? Place your life in God's hands. Look what it says in verse 1. David writing this, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I've walked in my integrity. I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. David here is calling for God's justice. When he asks God to vindicate him, he is asking God for justice. Uh, Look what it says down in verse 9. It says, Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. So David, at this point of his life, and again, we don't know what point of his life he's dealing with here, but at this point in his life, he feels like he's surrounded by evildoers, wicked men who want to hurt him, who want to destroy him. And so David's saying, hey, Lord, in the midst of all these, these evil folks that surround me, would you vindicate me? Would you give me justice? They're going to be swept away, but would you give me justice? Uh, Warren Wiersbe writes, vindicate means give me justice to fend my reputation. 
David was a man of integrity, a fact that was affirmed by the Lord himself. The people attacking were hypocrites, play actors who wore masks to cover up their evil character. It calls them that in verse 4. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor nor do I consort with hypocrites. So David is surrounded by evil, hypocritical people, and he's trying to serve the Lord with integrity. So he says, God, would you vindicate me? Would you give me justice as I'm surrounded by enemies. Now, I think James Montgomery Boyce makes a very interesting insight into this phrase, vindicate me. He says, at first glance, the word vindicate suggests a desire to be shown to be right over against other people. I've been falsely accused. Show everybody that I'm really innocent. But as I read the psalm, I sense that it is not David's reputation in the eyes of other people that concerns him, but rather God's vindication of the rightness of a devout and moral life. So here's what David's saying. I'm trying to do the right thing, surrounded by people who are not. So would you show them in a watching world the the consequences of living a moral life um, contrasted with living an immoral life? That's what he's saying. He goes on to say, Boyce goes on to say, in other words, it is not his own reputation, but God's reputation that he covets. He's been trying to obey God. He is surrounded by many who think that he is foolish, just as we are surrounded by, by similar mockers of righteousness today, what he's asking is that God will show by the quality and steadiness of his life that a moral life is always best. Let me say that again. He's, trying, he's asking God that God will show by the quality and steadiness of his life that a moral life is always best for the sake of God's own honor and for the good of those who may be looking on. So David is saying to the Lord, Lord, a moral life is always best. Would you show people that? Would you show these evildoers, these hypocrites that? Would you show the folks that are watching that? Would you show, would you vindicate me to show that a moral life is always best? And so David is calling on, uh, calling on God for justice. He's calling for God's justice. When you find yourself surrounded by evildoers, you even find yourself falsely accused or, uh, or persecuted or uh, there are uh, enemies that come against you, it is right. Uh, it is okay to pray for God to vindicate you in that situation, for God to show that you are uh, on the right path and that the right path always ends best. So he is calling for God's justice here in this psalm. But also, David is waiting on God, and he waits on God by actively trusting God. Look what he says in verse 1. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I've walked in my integrity, and I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. So he's waiting for God to act. He's asking for God to vindicate, to show justice, to deliver him from these evildoers. But notice, while he's waiting for God, he is actively trusting God. He says, I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. Look what it says in verse 11 of this same psalm. Verse 11, but as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me, and be gracious to me. So, Lord, as I'm waiting for you to vindicate me, as I'm waiting for you to show up and help me out, I'm asking you to, uh, to help me to walk in integrity. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to do the right thing. So David waits on God by actively trusting God. Look with me. Hold your place. But turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Just a quick word about 1 Peter. It's written by the Apostle Peter to Christians who were scattered all throughout Asia Minor. And this time period, the first century, these Christians in this area were experiencing persecution. They were going through very uh, real trials. Peter calls them fiery trials because they were placing their faith in Christ and following Jesus. And they were suffering. And look what Peter says to them in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, the last verse in that chapter. Therefore... He talks to him about suffering. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to, to a faithful creator while doing good. So in other words, wait on God to vindicate you. Trust God with the outcome. But while you're trusting him, while you've placed your, hand, your life in his hands, you actively seek to do the right thing. You actively seek to do good. You see a lot of verses throughout Scripture. We'll get to some of them uh, in a few weeks. There are a lot of verses in Scripture about waiting on God. Waiting on God doesn't mean you just kind of, you know, you just kind of 
twiddle your thumbs and don't do anything. It means that you trust that God has your life in his hands. You trust that God's going to work it all out in the end. And while you're waiting for God to do that, while you're waiting to God to give you vindication, you're actively serving him. You're actively trusting him. You're actively walking with him. And so this first necessity is so important. Place your life in God's hands. Trust him. If you are going through difficulty, trust him. If you're in the valley, trust him. If you're surrounded by folks who are against you, trust him. Place your life in God's hands. That's where your life belongs. Anyway, God will handle it better than you will. So if you want to have a stable life, learn to just trust God, to place your life in his hand and to pray for God to work it all out. The second thing about firm footing is live an examined life. Live an examined life. I can't remember the person that said it. I wish, who said it? I'm trying to think of the man's name. Hold on a second. But it's a famous quote. But basically the quote goes like this. Uh, One of the great tragedies of life is an unexamined life. When you never stop to take stock of how you're doing in your life. And, and if we don't live an examined life, we will not have firm footing. We will find ourselves slipping and falling because we are not standing uh, for the Lord on His truth. So look with me in, back in Psalm 26. I want you to notice there's two parts to an examined life. The first part is God's examination. Look what it says there in verse 2. Prove me, O Lord, and try me, test my heart and my mind. So he's asking God, now watch this, he's asking God to examine him. He's asking God to show him how he's doing in his walk with God. Now we see this often throughout scripture. For example, hold your place, but turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24. These were our VBS theme verses this year. Psalm 139. I love Psalm 139. We'll get to this in a couple years, so I can't wait. I can't wait to preach it to you. But look what it says in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So the psalmist here, uh, again, David is asking God to examine his heart. Now, here's a quick question for you. When was the last time you asked God, for a spiritual examination of your life. Now this isn't real, this isn't, this can be kind of scary and it's not always real pleasant, but it's necessary because if we don't let God examine our lives, we can live our lives with massive blind spots. And you know what blind spots do? Blind spots will eventually destroy you. I remember my first driving lesson with my dad. I'd got my learner's permit and uh, he took me out to teach me some things. Actually, I'd been driving. We lived out in the woods, and I'd been driving out in the woods. It was my first, you know, on the highway driving lesson. And uh, we got out on the highway, Highway 19, and uh, we were driving down the road, and there was a car coming up behind me. And Dad said, I want you to watch that car in your rearview mirror. So I was watching it, and it went, got into the passing lane. He said, I want you to keep watching it. Tell me when you don't see it anymore in your rearview mirror. So the car was passing, and it got in the, the passing lane. I was watching, watching, and all of a sudden it disappeared. He said, do you see it in your side mirror? And I said, no. He said, look over your shoulder. I looked. The car was right there. He said, even though you don't see it in your rearview mirror, and you don't see it in your side mirror, the car's still there. So the lesson was, before you change lanes, check your what? Blind spot. Because if you don't check your blind spot, you'll get in a wreck, right? And guess what? It's the same way in our lives. If we don't address blind spots and we live with massive blind spots in our lives, then we are heading for disaster. And guess what? This is what we really encourage you. We all got blind spots. And probably folks around you know them better, know, know them even if you don't, right? Blind spots. So here's the deal. Ask God to show you those blind spots. That's what he's saying there. God, search my heart. Show me if there's anything in my life that needs to be addressed. Now, I've prayed this prayer before, and I pray it actually quite often, and it's a prayer that God always answers. You want a prayer that God will always answer? Do you want, do you want to hear it? You sure? I'm like, what are you going to say, Wade? 
Here's a prayer that God always answers. I'll say, Lord, would you bring to the surface of my heart any impurities that don't belong there? Bring to the surface of my heart any impurities that don't belong there. You know, is there something in my heart that, I, that I'm not seeing? And when you ask, ask God to show you that, he'll instantly begin to reveal things to you that are in your heart that you need to address. And so that's a great prayer to pray. God, surface in my heart any impurities that don't belong there so I can address them, I can deal with them. Uh, you are asking God for his examination, and God is thorough, right? God is thorough. He will search your heart, try your thoughts, show you, as David asked, show you anything in your life that needs to be addressed. And so David's saying here, I'm surrounded by evildoers. I want to live a, I want to live a sure-footed, firm-footed life. And so God, would you examine my heart, show me if there's anything in my life that does not belong there. And hey, if God shows you something that doesn't belong there, what should you do? Stop doing it, right? I mean, the old new heart skit, remember that? Stop it, right? Don't do it anymore. Stop doing it. Deal with it so you're no longer living with that blind spot. And so we see God's examination. But not only is there God's examination, there's self-examination. Look what it says in verse 3. He says in verse 2, Prove me, O Lord, and try me, test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes. I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor, I, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence. I go around your altar, O Lord. Now David's not bragging here about his life. David is really taking stock of his life. There's some things that, I've, that I'm not doing, that the, that the evil folks are doing. And he's, he's examining his own life, self-examination. And one of the great spiritual disciplines that you and I can have is self-examination, where you take time to take stock of your life, right? That you, you're, you're examining, how, how am I really doing? How am I doing my walk with God? Am, am I growing? Do I, do I see sanctification? Do I see growing Christ-likeness? Do I see sins that I used to struggle with uh, being laid aside? Am I... Am I winning more victories than I am experiencing defeats. How am I doing in my life? The uh, Gospels, I'm sorry, the, the New Testament speaks of an examined life, a self-examined life. As a matter of fact, it's over in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. <laughs> I mean, just take stock of your life. I, is there any fruit in my life? Am, am I truly a believer? Am I truly regenerate? Is there any reason for me to believe that Jesus lives in me and is changing my life. Examine yourself. We need to examine our life. That's self-examination. How am I really doing? And, and if you need some help in this, ask somebody that's close to you that you trust, and they can help you out with that part too, right? That's not always fun, but they can help you out with that. And so live an examined life. Uh, when we go to the doctor, we go for an examination, right? We want them to to surface what the problem is, what the issue is. Um, and here's what's interesting about, uh, about doctors. I learned this language from, from Claire when she was in pharmacy school. Uh, she would study, and, and I'd hear her say some things and learn some things. But, you know, when you go to a doctor or healthcare professional, you go with a presenting problem. Like, here's my issue. And then it's the, the doctor's job to figure out what's causing the presenting problem. Right? That takes examination. And so a lot of us have these issues in our life, but we've never let God examine us or examine ourselves to see what's causing those issues, what, what the, the foundational issues are that are causing those things, those presenting problems in our life. So we need to live an examined life. So place your life in God's hands, live an examined life. Number three, and this is so important, develop a passion for worship. Develop a passion for worship. Nothing will keep you as grounded, as sure-footed, as focused upon the Lord. And by the way, that's what worship is. Let me give you a quick definition of worship. Worship is setting your mind's... Write this down. This is, I should have put this in your notes. But, but worship is setting your mind's attention, your heart's affection, and your will's allegiance upon the Lord. Worship is setting your mind's attention, your heart's affection, and your will's allegiance to the Lord. In other words, worship is saying, I'm engaging God uh, truthfully. I'm worshiping Him in truth, who He is and what He says in His Word. I'm relating to Him based upon truth. 
I'm worshiping him with my heart, my affections, my emotions are engaged in this worship of God. And true worship is responding, saying, Lord, here's my life. Use it however you want to use it. I surrender my will to you, your way. That's what true worship is. So that keeps you grounded. It keeps you sure-footed in your life. So what does true worship look like? Well, the psalmist talks about it here. So let me give you some thoughts about true worship. This will be fun. You ready? Number one, true worship begins when you're washed in the blood. True worship begins when you're washed in the blood. And if you're not washed in the blood of Jesus, you're not really worshiping. You may be doing some religious things, you may be involved in some religious ceremonies, but if you've not been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, your sins have not been washed away, forgiven, then you don't really have a relationship with God by which you can engage Him in worship. And so to worship, you've got to be washed in the blood. Look what it says in verse 6. Very interesting verse. He says, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord. He's probably talking here about the altar that was outside of the... Um, holy place in the holy of holies where they would sacrifice animals and they would take the blood of those animals into the the holy place into the holy of holies and sprinkle that blood as a as a symbolic reminder that that innocent blood has to be shed to cover the sins of the guilty and so when the people of Israel uh, lived under the sacrificial system every time an innocent animal was killed they were reminded I'm guilty and this animal is dying for me his blood's being shed for me and it is based upon that atoning sacrifice that I am forgiven. Not based upon my goodness or my works, but based upon the sacrifice, that's how I'm forgiven. And all of this pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ by which we experience true forgiveness. So the altar, the shedding of blood on the altar, was a picture of forgiveness. A picture of blood being shed for guilty sinners. So David here is saying, I'm not... I'm not worthy to be in God's presence. I'm not worthy to worship him, but I'm at the altar. Blood has been shed for me. It's a reminder of the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus died for my sins. He shed his blood for me so I could be forgiven. True worship begins when you're washed in the blood. Every time an animal was killed, it was a picture of the cross. It was a picture of blood sacrifice. And listen to me. Here's what you need to understand. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. And God is holy. He's perfect. He's a God of absolute moral perfection. The Bible says he's light in him. There's no darkness at all. And so darkness can never abide in the presence of pure light. So we'll never be able to be in God's presence with unforgiven sin in our life. Our only hope is to embrace Jesus Christ who died for our sins at the cross. And we embrace him by faith. His blood that he shed for us is applied to our spiritual life, our account, and his blood washes away our sins. We are forgiven because we have embraced Jesus Christ and his death. And when that happens, that barrier of impurity between you and a holy God is taken away. It's been washed in the blood. And then you are reconciled to God. You have a personal relationship with him. And that's where true worship begins. Amen? Because you know him in a personal way. And so true worship begins when you're washed in the blood. The altar was a picture of the cross, the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. Secondly, true worship is unashamed. True worship is unashamed. Look in verse 7. He said, I wash my hands in innocence, which, by the way, probably speaks of the, uh, the laver where the priest would wash their hands before they went into the, the, the uh, holy place. And the washing of hands was symbolic that... Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not clean. I need cleansing before I can go into the presence of God. Another picture of the cleansing that Jesus offers us. But then, then he says, I go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. Isn't that interesting? Proclaiming thanksgiving aloud. Aloud. How many of you have ever heard someone say, my faith is a private matter? You heard somebody say that? Raise your hand. Raise your, have you heard somebody say that before? You will not find that in the Bible. That's a, that, is a, that is an unbiblical statement. My faith is a private matter. I'm going to keep it to myself. You won't find it. The Bible says, bear witness, right? Speak of the great things God has done for you. Tell of his deeds among the peoples, among the nations. Be, be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. So we're not called to live a private faith. 
we are called to live a, a public, unashamed faith. And he's saying here, I proclaim thanksgiving aloud. I'm not ashamed for people to know how grateful I am for what you've done for me. I'm not ashamed to let people know that I love you. That, that's what he's saying here. I proclaim thanksgiving aloud. True worship is unashamed. David was so unashamed in his worship that when the temple was being brought into Jerusalem, David, if you remember, was dancing before the ark. Remember that? He's dancing before the ark. And his wife, who was Saul's daughter, Michael, was watching through the window and she thought David was making a fool of himself. As a matter of fact, she was royalty, right? She was King Saul's daughter. And that's not how nobility act, acted. You know, nobility needs to act with some decorum. And, and this guy, he's dancing. He's, he's going to be a king, and, he, and, he, and he's, or he is a king, and he's dancing before the ark. What, what's the deal? He's making a fool of himself. No, David was unashamed in his worship. And you and I should be unashamed in our worship. I, I read a, an article just today, and the, the title of the article is interesting. It says, Saved People Sing. That's the title of the article. Saved People Sing. And, and you know, you, you get into a, a gathering of, of, of folks that are there for a church service, and there are songs being played and, and sung. And I, and I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't look at you. I have my back turned to you because I'm I'm worshiping the Lord in my own personal life. Um, so I'm not. You know. I'm not. I'm not. You know. Going looking at everybody, seeing how they're doing. Uh, but I know because I've been doing this for a while. This ain't my first rodeo. I know uh, that there's some people out there who are are stoic and and uh, they would never let see, see let someone see them. You know, actually singing words to God. They're that they're they're too they're too noble for that. Listen to me. People that have been redeemed from their sins by the blood of Jesus who died on the cross for us should be overflowing with worship that is not a shame for anyone to know that they love Jesus. Amen? And so true worship is unashamed. Our the people sitting by us in the pew should know, hey, we're not ashamed to say we love our Savior and we think he deserves praise. Our kids should not, should, should not wonder whether or not we're excited about Jesus. They should be able to see it in our, in our lives and in, in, in our gratitude. True worship is unashamed. That's what David says. I, he says, I'm proclaiming thanksgiving aloud. Hey, there's a great illustration of this over in Luke. Um, what chapter is it? Is it chapter 18? Chapter 19? Maybe end of 19. But it's the, it's the, it's the passage about the... Uh, well, I'll just turn it. I'll have you turn it. Turn to Luke 19 until further notice. Make sure it's the right passage. Let's see. Oh, I'm sorry, Luke 17. Luke 17, verse 11. Luke 17, verse 11. Great verse here. A great passage. On the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Their leprosy was gone. Just supernatural, miraculous healing. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God. Now look at this, with a loud voice, unashamed, a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. I love how the Bible highlights here the Samaritans, the hero of the story. He was a Samaritan. And then Jesus asked this really good question. Were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? He said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This Samaritan leper who had been healed goes back and it says very specifically with a loud voice falling down on his face at the feet of Jesus. He's unashamed to say, you know, I had leprosy a few minutes ago. 
and I don't anymore, and I'm pretty excited about that. And I know you're the one that did it because I asked you, and you did it, and I want to say thanks. And I don't care if everyone sees me saying thanks. I love this story. So hey, listen, thinking of this through this passage, are you more like the one or the nine? Are you more like the one or the nine? Are you unashamed in your worship, unashamed in your gratitude? You don't care if other people see you actively engaging the Lord, or are you like the nine? Hey, you're grateful to be healed, you're, you're grateful for the blessings of God, and you celebrate them privately, but you're just going to go your way in life and never stop to fall at the feet of Jesus and say, you're the one that did this. Good question, isn't it? You're more like the one or the ten. David's saying, I'm not ashamed to go into the temple, Psalm 26, and to cry aloud that I am thankful. I am not ashamed to do that. True worship is is unashamed. Third thing here, true worship recognizes that the place of worship is special. Look back with me in Psalm 26 verse 8. Oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. He's speaking here of the temple complex. This is where uh, the Jewish people would gather for corporate, public worship. And David's saying, I love going there. I I love going to the temple because that's where you are in terms of meeting with your people corporately. That's where your people gather. And there's something special about that place. True worship recognizes the place of worship is special. And I believe we should recognize that as well. Um, and we we got to keep this in balance. Uh, you know, there there's a place that we gather as a church to worship, and you know what? It's a gym. If you don't believe that, look to your right and your left real quick. It's a gym, and uh, I've heard comments through the years. I don't like worshiping in a the gym. They weren't said directly to me. They came through back channels. But you know how that works. I don't like worshiping in a gym. Listen to me. If this is the place God's people gather, filled with the Spirit of God to worship the living God through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, this gym becomes holy ground. This gym is just as holy as the Holy of Holies was back in this time. Just as holy. Because God's people are here with the Spirit of God indwelling them, and they are here to worship Jesus. Some of the most most powerful Worship services I've ever been in were in the old hardware store in the downtown square with a heater that rattled so loud I had to yell at people so they could hear me. That's why I'm so loud, by the way. It just has carried over from, from the hardware store days. I, I, mean, I had to yell, for and in, in, in when it was cold, uh, when, it was, when it was really cold outside, the, the water lines were freezing. We'd have to bring in porta-potties for bathrooms. And it was just not an ideal location to grow and expand, but we had people coming every week and we were growing it was incredible but I'm telling you that old converted hardware store we met with God the living God and it was powerful and so the place is important because it's where you meet with God the focus shouldn't be on what the place looks like or or how comfortable we want to be in the place The, the the focus should be on hey this is where God's people to meet with him Hey, natural disasters happen. If a tornado came through here tomorrow and wiped out our facilities, which is possible, right? It's possible. If that happened, you know what we do on Sunday? We'd worship. We'd find the oak tree out there or something, the parking lot, and we'd get together and we'd worship. And that place where we gather to worship would be special because it's where God's people gather. And he's saying here, I love to go to the temple. That's where your people gather. That's where your people gather to worship you. True worship recognizes that the place of worship is special. And and I hope you have that sense of, of expectancy in gathering in a place with God's people uh, to worship. The church I grew up in, Burton Baptist Church was the church I grew up in. And, uh, and they, they changed their name. Uh, it's now Cross Point Baptist. But they, uh, they, they built, a couple years ago, they built a new worship center. And it's really big and really, really nice. And, uh, and, and Claire and I drove by not too long ago. And we noticed 
like one times we were in Perry, we noticed that they had torn down the old worship center, that, which, is, which is in front of the new one that they built. And I had just a little tinge of sadness. Worship's still happening. They're in a the new building. That's wonderful. But you know what I remember? I remember the place. I remember being with God's people in that in that building, the building was nothing fancy, nothing, nothing really significant. Just a, it was a, a concrete block building that was painted white on the outside, and and it, it was just nothing, nothing much to it. But it was a place, and what I remember is not the the blocks. I remember God's people meeting to worship. How about you? So David's excited about the place of worship. Next, true worship longs for God's presence. True worship longs for God's presence. Look what it says in verse 8. Oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. The place where your glory dwells. There were times when God's people were worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And they were living out the sacrificial system according to the law that God gave them in Leviticus. And they were observing the Day of Atonement and all of that. Sacrificing animals and the scapegoat and the ox and the bulls, all that. Uh, there were times when God would come down in manifest form where they, he would allow them to see some of his glory. The, they call it Shekinah glory, the unveiled glory of God, where he would just come down and they could see his glory resting over the Holy of Holies. And the Bible says in those moments, his presence was so thick in the Holy of Holies, the holy place, that the priests couldn't even go in there. They couldn't even enter the place. He was just filled up with the, with the awesome terrifying presence of God. He would let them see just a glimpse of his glory. And David's referring to that. Hey, the the holy place, the holy of holies, that's the place where your glory dwells. But here's the neat thing. Listen to me. Here's the neat thing. The Bible says that now the glory of God rests in us. Because in Christ, God comes to live on the inside of us. We are now the holy of holies. Amen? God lives on the inside of us. So in one sense, we always are living in the presence of God. That's why it says over in Hebrews, the Lord saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm with you always, Jesus said, even to the end of the age. And so in one sense, if you are a redeemed believer in Jesus, if you've been saved, if you've been born again, God is always with you. And that will never change. He's present in your life. He lives on the inside of you. Amen? Pretty awesome, really incredible reality. But there is a sense where God can manifest his glory in a corporate setting. You see that in in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. You see these times where God's people gather to worship and God just, just, he makes his presence tangible. So people know he's there. And I don't know what that always looks like, but I do know that we should desire God's presence. When we gather in corporate worship, we bring God with us because he lives on the inside of us. But we should also long for God to move in such a way that our hearts are uh, engaged, that we know he's near, that he's, he's working and changing our lives and awakening our hearts to his goodness and his glory. Uh, we want God to move and manifest his presence in our midst. And there have been times that I've been in a worship service, and, and there are just times God just kind of pulls back the, the curtains of glory, and he just, he just lets you know he's there. And just in, a, in a way that you can't even articulate, you, you just know, hey, God is moving in, in this gathering. He's moving in a really special way today. I don't know what he's up to, but there's something here that's just kind of an unusual sense of his presence. I don't mean to sound too mystical, but if if you've been walking with God for very long, you know that that's the case. There are certain times when you gather with God's people that God just seems to to move in an unusual, uh, powerful way. And, And David's here saying, I love your presence, and true worship longs for God's presence. I love, Lord, when you show your presence to us. Next thing, true worship happens individually and corporately. Look in verse 8. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house. Look what he says in verse 6. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord. So David's using the, the pronoun I, the personal pronoun I. I love to worship you uh, individually. But he mentions corporate worship here. He's very clear. Look what he says. In verse 12, my foot stands on level ground in the great assembly 
I will bless the Lord. So again, he uses personal pronoun, but notice it's in the context of the great assembly. He's, he's speaking very specifically here of gathering with God's people at the temple complex to worship God through singing, through praying, through the sacrificial system. They are worshiping God. Reading of scripture, they are worshiping God. They are engaged in individual and corporate worship. True worship happens individually and corporately. So, There ought to be times when you worship God alone. It's just you and Him. Amen? It can happen on your knees in your prayer closet or on your vehicle, on your commute to work, or at your dining room table, or just anywhere. Because of Jesus and His shed blood, anywhere we go to Him in prayer is the Holy of Holies. So so you can engage God anywhere, individually. And I hope you worship God individually. But there's also a dynamic that happens when God's people get together. That's called corporate worship. And I'm telling you, there, there's nothing that can duplicate corporate worship. And I've been to sporting events, and I've been to, you know, I've been to Disney World, and, and I, I've seen the best that our society can offer in terms of entertainment. I've been to Broadway plays, and I, I've seen all that, and I've seen the best that our nation, that our society can offer in terms of entertainment. And listen to me, none of it comes even close to the dynamic that occurs when God's people get together. Doesn't even come close. Doesn't even compare. I mean, it's laughable that, that people go to such great lengths to try to engage people when we get to do it every Sunday and get together and have joy and and excitement, and life change, and our minds, and our hearts are engaged together with God. Nothing can come close to that dynamic. That's why, now having said that, that's why, and this is the the toe-stepping part of the sermon, that's why I just can't wrap my mind around someone that says, hey, I know Jesus, I'm saved, I'm just not into church. And what they mean by that is I'm not into church attendance. What? The, the corporate gathering of God's people to sing songs in the presence of God and to let Him speak to us through His Word and have fellowship with one another, I mean, nothing comes close to that. I mean, even though you have a mediocre preacher, nothing comes close to it, right? I mean, it's just exciting to be together and let God speak into our lives. True worship happens individually and corporately. Hey, here's a little tidbit this will really help you. You ready? If you'll worship God individually, corporate worship will mean more to you on Sundays. I'm going to say it again. I don't think everybody's listening. If you worship God individually, corporate worship will be more exciting. I mean, if you've been talking to Him all week long and He's been working in your life, you've been reading the Word, walking with Him on your knees, praying, and then you show up to church, it's a totally different ballgame. But if you've been ignoring God all week, and just kind of kind of making it through life, and you show up on Sunday, I mean, you shouldn't be surprised if you're having a hard time paying attention. You've been ignoring God all week long, right? Your, your, your spiritual senses have not been trained to focus on the Lord. So if you will worship God individually, I promise you, I promise you that Sunday mornings will take on a whole new dynamic in your life. They, they really will. And so true worship happens individually and corporately. David shows us that in the assembly. I will bless the Lord. And then here's the last thing. True worship keeps you grounded. True worship keeps you grounded. Look in verse 12. My foot stands on level ground. I'm not slipping and sliding with everything that life throws at me. My foot stands on level ground. I'm surrounded by enemies, but I'm standing on level ground. Why? In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. As he worships God, he lives a firm-footed life. True worship keeps you grounded. Now listen to me. Mondays through Saturdays are going to be fraught with peril. Amen? Fraught with peril. You're going to have tough things happen during your week. You're going to have some good times, some good things happen. You're going to have some tough things happen. Life doesn't always go your way. Correct? And there are things that happen that are, that are difficult or someone mistreats you or something goes wrong or you have anxiety or worry or concern or whatever. 
life is hard. And if you don't have that time of gathering with God's people to kind of get recentered, refocused, and remember what life is really all about, then you're going to be pretty miserable. But if you will gather with God's people regularly and, and you center your heart on the Lord Jesus, you get back in the Word, you're building your life on the firm foundation of God's Word, you'll stay grounded. And, and the, the lows of life will not affect you the way they would if you were not focusing your heart upon the Lord. True worship keeps you grounded. True worship, listen to this, true worship gives you perspective. Right? I mean, there are some things in your life that look like they are, are overwhelming. But when you come on a Sunday or a Wednesday and you are reminded of how big God is, all of a sudden you think, God's got this. God can handle this. You've heard the phrase, stop telling God how big your problems are. Start telling your problems how big your God is. Right? Corporate worship is a reminder... I serve a big God. He's my Father. He loves me. He provides for me. He protects me. He watches over me. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. And that reminder week after week after week after week grounds you. And you're not slipping and sliding with life. You are firm, firmly grounded. You are on firm footing. Develop a passion for worship. By the way, you can read Psalm 73, which is a psalm about about the, uh, the psalmist uh, looking around at his life. And he says, you know, I look around. Tell me if you ever had this experience. He said, I look around, and I see folks that are ungodly, and they are thriving. They're doing great. They're not having any problems paying their utility bill. They got plenty of money. They're popular. They're wealthy. They're happy. They're joyful. Always got a smile on their face. He said, and then I'm trying to serve God, I'm trying to do the right thing, and I'm struggling. I can't hardly make ends meet. And I've got all these issues in my life. And and so, God, I don't understand. That guy doesn't care about you. I love you. I'm trying to serve you. His life looks great. My life looks like it's a mess. I don't get it. You ever been there and may have that thought before? But then he says something. Turn to it. Turn to Psalm 73. I want to show you this one verse. Psalm 73. And I'm going to close, I promise. This is extra. This is overtime. All right, overtime. You know, when you have overtime, you get extra sports for free, right? You get extra sermon for free tonight. Psalm 73, only one person laughed at that. Look at verse 16. He says, When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. That awesome? The psalmist is saying, I didn't get it until I went to worship. And when I went to worship, it gave me the right perspective. Yeah, they look like they're having a ball, but their end is destruction. My end is eternal life. I'll take my path over their path every day. Amen? You got to look at the big picture. And worship helps you to remember the big picture Worship grounds you in the proper perspective so you can handle and manage life with God's help as it comes your direction. Develop a passion for worship. So if you want to have a firm-footed life, you want to build your life on the rock, place your life in God's hands, live an examined life, and develop a passion for worship. And the Lord will help you to stand firm in it.